Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Anima, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely a pleasure to finally get an interview going. It's not been that long since I saw you last. Scaled ML, yes. I think, uh, yes. at Stanford. Right, that's right. I mean, the Scaled ML was uh, a small and an intimate event, but just so many amazing speakers, and the audience was also really cool to interact with. Absolutely, absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested and started uh, down the path of ML and AI? Yeah, I guess you could say like, even as a child, I was always interested in um, math, you know, like to me, like kind of just the aspect of understanding a lot of structure and explaining the world through math seemed magical. And, uh, and then through the years, you know, I did engineering and in the beginning of my PhD, I wanted to ask questions on how we can use mathematical techniques uh, to understand data better, to process them better, scale that up and run them in real systems. Uh, of course, my beginning was humble, you know, I was looking at purely the theoretical aspects. I was asking uh, questions in sensor networks. Now you might call them Internet of Things. IoT, right. right? I mean, back then that name didn't exist, uh, which dates me. Uh, but uh, the questions were still very relevant today. How much of learning do you do at, on the edge, on the devices? How do you transmit this? What about bandwidth constraints? How do you route them? How do you exploit the correlations of measurements between different sensors? So these were the questions that I started tackling. And to me, like solving these math problems was very fascinating. But I wanted to also get them working on real systems, right? So because back then we didn't have the IoT revolution going yet, I decided to switch to settings where I could just purely work with data. So I asked, suppose we have all the data in one place, can we do something uh, interesting and can I try this out in different scenarios? And that's when I started working on probabilistic graphical models, uh, understanding relationships between variables, how we can discover those graphical relationships at scale, and what techniques would uh, allow us to provide guarantees, like, you know, when do we successfully discover them? And uh, understanding really when uh, we can discover information about hidden variables. So as you can imagine, every model is wrong, right? So there is right. <laughs> only better models which can approximate the real world in some ways, you know, better than others. Uh, but the question is uh, whether having hidden variables will allow us to have a more realistic model. Because so many times we cannot measure everything about the real world. So the ones that are hidden from the measurements, can we incorporate them into the model and how do we discover them? Uh, as an example, you know, think about categorizing documents, right? So there's a whole bunch of news articles, but suppose there's no human annotation of what the documents are talking about, then that's a hidden variable. We don't know those uh, categories for the documents. So suppose we can incorporate them as hidden variables and use the uh, text as absurd variables. Can we now learn about these relationships from data? even when the variables are not directly observed. 
Okay, great. And so your lab at Caltech is called the Tensor Lab, and you spend a lot of your time focusing on uh, on researching tensors and tensor implementations of machine learning algorithms and things like that. Can you maybe walk us through uh, that line of research and uh, what it's all about and tie it back to this problem that you started with? Absolutely. I mean, it's been a very interesting journey. It's taken me uh, about six years now to see the tensor field uh, mature more. Right. So I do want to add a caveat. Uh, You know, the research on tensor algebra is very different from TensorFlow. You know, there is... (laughs) Always this one person in the audience who will ask me about TensorFlow when I give the talk on Tensor. The common point there is the the phrase tensor, which means what? Yeah, so tensor, you know, as a naive definition, right, is a multidimensional array. So now you don't just have two dimensions. It's not just rows and columns. You have many more dimensions in your array that can be thought of a tensor. But then there is a deeper algebraic meaning that I think uh, many people who are not in the field may not be aware, right? So just as we treat the matrix not just as rows or columns, but there's a whole host of linear algebraic techniques. So matrix really can be thought of as an operator. You're operating matrix on a field, you know, you're using that to change your vector, right? When you multiply a vector... transformation of some sort. Exactly, exactly. And so tensors could be thought of as a richer class of such transformations. And so in that sense, the TensorFlow term is apt because you have an input data which can be thought of as a tensor, and there's an output that's also a tensor, right? I mean, if it's just a vector, that's a special case of tensors. So TensorFlow is one that kind of flows through the network as a series of tensor transformations. Uh, But the shortcoming in most of the current networks is we are still using linear algebraic computations in different layers. Whether it's a fully connected layer where we are doing a matrix multiplication, it could be a convolutional layer where we have these set of filters. So can we now expand these set of operations to more dimensions? Uh, to give you an example, you know, can we now, f- uh, in a layer, instead of doing just a matrix multiplication, can we directly operate on higher dimensional tensors? If the input to a layer is now a three-dimensional set of activations from the previous layer, can we now f- uh, set up a computation that doesn't just turn into a matrix multiplication that directly operates on all the three dimensions and so can exploit the information of different dimensions more effectively. Mm. Is it just me or is part of the challenge with this the general trouble we have uh, visualizing you know higher dimensions than three? Yeah, no, it's interesting that you ask. Uh, actually, people, you know, this is not new, right? Like thinking in high dimensions. Uh, there is a book I discovered a few years ago called Flatland from... Edwin Abbott. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> right? So it's been in arts. It's been in literature. The general theory of relativity thinks about many dimensions, right? So uh, and to, you know, tell the... Uh, audience about what this book is about, the part that I found it fascinating is this is set up in a two-dimensional world. Like every person is a two-dimensional object, like a square or a polygon. And then there's a three-dimensional monster that visits this world, right? So as the three-dimensional object is moving through the two-dimensional world, it's rapidly changing shapes. And so that's very scary to the two-dimensional people. 
So I would use this analogy that many people, when they cannot visualize something, they feel that's way too abstract or that's confusing. But then math is much richer than just the three dimensions that we live in, or mm. the fourth dimension if you use time, right? So they can visualize, you know, it can formulate and solve problems in infinite dimensions. And that form of thinking and that form of algorithms will help us process all the multimodal data we are obtaining today. So it's not just visual data, it could be textual data. There's again other domain knowledge. So how do we use all this in an integrated approach? And that's where tensors can have a big impact. And so maybe maybe give us some concrete examples. I mean, it, one of the things that strikes me is that you know, when we're talking about sensor data, we're talking about sensor data that, um, and this is, you know, perhaps maybe naive, but we're talking about sensor data that comes from an inherently, you know, three-dimensional world. I guess if you start layer on, layering on time and maybe channels and things like that, it gets more complex. Is that where the multi-dimensionality comes from? You know, when we're extracting, fundamentally we're extracting things from our real world? It's interesting that you ask because, indeed, one uh, direct way of using tensors is when the data itself has many dimensions, right? But another more nuanced way of using it is to model the relationships between data. So let me go back to the example of document categorization. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I talked about how do we automatically discover the categories or topics in documents when there are no labels available, Right, so unsupervised learning problems tend to be really hard because we don't have a human label saying, example saying where, uh, what are the topics. Um, so in this scenario, what you can do is intuitively look at frequency of words. Right, this bag of words is the simplest technique that's out there. So you can just count words. So let's say the word apple, it appears a lot in the document. I mean, this by itself is not informative because it could be the fruit or it could be the company. Right. So now you can say, okay, let me not just count one word, let me count occurrences, pairwise occurrences of words. So what if the word apple and orange occurs together? Right. So even in this case, maybe it's likely to be fruit, but orange is also a company. Right. right? So now what about three words? If I count like occurrences of triplets of words, if it's apple, orange, banana, then likely it's a fruit. Right? But it's humanly impossible to go label every triplets of categories and say what topics they should belong to. Right? So can there be algorithms that can automatically discover at scale these higher-order relationships? Right? So if you think about pairwise relationships, they are correlations. So you can represent that as a matrix. So you list all the words as rows and columns, mm -hmm. count the co-occurrences that can be represented as a matrix. But if you have to so do n-wise relationships correlates to n-dimensional tensors. Precisely. Essentially. And now the question is, what class of operations can you do on them to discover these hidden variables, to discover the topics in documents? And what I showed in one of my first papers is how we can decompose a certain tensor, a three-dimensional tensor, and discover the topics and discover the relationship between those topics and the words in the documents. Interesting. And so prior to this work or prior to um, a tensor-oriented approach, we would first go through the step of mapping this all to linear algebra and matrix operations and, and things like that. And it sounds like the, the argument is that that's inefficient. 
is it an inefficiency or is it do are we missing out on uh key tools in doing that so there is a bit of everything so for the specific <laughs> <laughs> as always right the problem is complicated for the specific uh, topic of um, topic modeling and other latent variable estimation uh, there were two sets of approaches one is expectation maximization so you have the likelihood function right so you kind of do a sort of local search method and hope to reach a globally optimal solution but many times it gets stuck especially for high dimensional problems and it's also slow uh and the other approach these matrix approaches tend to do simple linear dimensionality reduction techniques like the principal component analysis is the most common one so if you try to do a matrix approach or a linear algebra approach for topic modeling you would only discover the subspace of um the topic vectors right so you won't discover the actual modeling and um and also you know there is the class of spectral clustering where if the documents have separated topics you could try to do a clustering approach but in many cases they are not there are news articles talking both about science and politics and so on so there is no separation of documents into distinct categories right and in those problems there is really no other approach um other than expectation maximization that people have used in practice before and what we found is uh, in our experiments that these tensor methods can be scaled up very efficiently because they can build on current linear algebra techniques and uh, uh be parallelized in an embarrassingly parallel way and uh, we have that actually now available with amazon sagemaker and the comprehensive service so with that you we have benchmarks that we've released comparing it to open source topic modeling frameworks that use expectation maximization and you we said see sagemaker and what so sagemaker is the machine learning platform to run experiments and the comprehend is the natural language comprehend. processing service okay so with comprehend you can go and directly access the results uh, of topic modeling with sagemaker you can even play around with the algorithm and run benchmarks and so on tell me if this is right it it, it strikes me that your work is kind of operating in two dimensions well now i'm overusing the term dimensions but you know there's this one angle where there are different approaches there's expectation maximization there's pca um and others and your work is it's not just the or is it the the tensorization of expectation maximization it's another approach but it's an approach that is made possible because you can operate in this tensor domain is that correct or so it it really is another approach it's looking at a different objective yeah. right so if you have a probabilistic model the standard approach is maximize likelihood right but classically there was another approach which was to match the moments uh you know it goes back to spearman in fact it goes back to even gauss if you go you know if you only match the first two moments that's when you get uh a gaussian distribution as an approximation to your true distribution right and what this is doing is now expanding this to uh higher order moments and also to many coordinates to multivariate distributions um because the intuition is now you know if you have a mixture of gaussians you cannot just do with two moments second order moments you need to go to higher order moments to try to separate the mixture components mm-hmm. and that applies to a broad class of models 
is tensors and tensor operations a tool that we can kind of naively go back and apply to these other things like expectation maximization, PCA, and is it is it a magic wand that we can wave at you know other results and make them better, or do we need a whole new set of approaches that are designed with this set of operations in mind? So I would say there's this whole spectrum of problems. Some are more low-hanging fruit than the other ones. Okay. Right? So there are indeed some straightforward use of tensors where you say like, oh, PCA, now I can do PCA in more dimensions. Let me tensorize it. Right? right? Uh, on the other hand, there are more sophisticated approaches where I can ask, can I now look at the problem in a new light because I can use tensor methods, right? Is this really the right approach there? Um, and so, yeah, so there is a whole spectrum. And the one that you know, I'm recently been exploring a lot more on has been on tensorizing neural networks, but in interesting ways, right? Because the question is, when can we win over simple linear algebraic techniques over different layers? Or can we even think of the overall deep layers as some kind of hierarchical tensor transformation? Because that's what it really is. And, um, you know, one of the works um, that um, some of the researchers have looked at, Nadav Cohen is the primary author, has been precisely to ask that. Can we look at algebraic techniques, the group theory, to understand neural networks better? So walk us through that, because I think you presented that at Scaled ML, and one of the examples you use, if I'm remembering this correctly, was looking at uh, a computer vision task uh, and uh, convolutional neural nets and kind of mapping that to, you know, what that might look like in a tensor world. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, a little bit. A little bit? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. So, you got, I think, uh, so the basic problem uh, there is we have these convolutional layers and then you feed the output of the convolutional layers to the fully connected layers. Mm -hmm. Right, so the output of the convolutional layers is actually a three-dimensional structure because there is the spatial dimensions and then there's the number of channels. Mm -hmm. But then when we are feeding them to the fully connected layers, we are flattening them and just turning it to a matrix multiplication. Right. So we are all losing all the three-dimensional information. And the question we asked was a very simple one. What if we try to preserve this three-dimensional information all the way to the end? Mm -hmm. And the way to do it is, instead of doing matrix multiplication, turn that into a three-dimensional tensor contraction. So multiply with weights on each of the dimensions of the three-dimensional tensor. And in the last layer, do a tensor regression. And use a low-rank tensor weights as a way to reduce the number of parameters. And that's what we found. We found a huge amount of space savings compared to the standard neural networks up to 65% in these fully connected layers. Space savings in what sense? In terms of the number of parameters. Okay. So the idea is by exploiting all the dimensionality information, we can have more compact networks. Okay. How else are you looking at applying this, this work? Yeah. And so that was one example. The other set of examples is, uh, as I said, to investigate the ability of tensors to come uh, capture higher order correlations better, right? And so we looked at time series. And so here, this can be very challenging because there can be all kinds of higher order correlations that affect uh, forecasting outcomes. And especially if you want to forecast way into the future, that can be much more important. And so what we did was we took RNNs and LSTMs and used a window of measurements and looked at tensorizations of them. 
And of course, if you naively tensorize, that blows up the number of parameters, right? Because that's a high-order tensor. But then you can do efficient tensor train approximations, a low-rank approximation. So what that yields is a succinct representation of higher-order correlations. And we found a lot of benefit compared to baseline LSTMs on a range of data sets, like forecasting traffics hours ahead, forecasting weather, you know, hundreds of days into the future. So there is a much um, a better performance in those settings. Uh, so I can foresee a lot of such cases where we have a diverse set of measurements, so tensors become a natural framework to encode the input, but then even during their processing through all the layers, you kind of treat them as tensor operations. So you can exploit the information in different dimensions more effectively. Do you see this tensorization as it's applied to neural networks? Is this something that is automatable or is it uh, akin to network architecture and its level of complexity? Like, you, did you do this via graduate student descent or did you run it through some uh, process? I mean, so I would say as great starting point would be to have a software framework that makes it easy to define these layers, right? So that's where uh, John Kosafi, he interned uh, with our group last year, and he's been working with me and also his advisors back in London on uh, developing TensorLeaf framework. So the TensorLeaf software, you can think of it as Keras. It has a front end that makes it very easy to define these tensor operations, but you can now connect it to multiple different backends, TensorFlow, PyTorch, MXNet, and the baseline NumPy as well. So if you don't want to bother about deep learning, you can even just do basic NumPy and do the operations uh, on CPU. So, But the benefit with this is now different uh, researchers and developers can go try out different architectures, right? See what works well in their domain for their data sets. And so I would say that's a good starting point. But indeed, the architecture design would be more complex because we have a broader set of operations. Uh, but on the other hand, I do think there's some nice research to be done in terms of how we can use group theories, how we can use our understanding of tensor algebra to do better architecture search. Elaborate on that. What are you thinking there? I mean, this kind of, you know, has also been seen in quantum systems and other areas of physics on asking different forms of tensor representations, what kind of correlation structures do they induce, and what would make sense for a particular domain. And we're just basically touching the surface of this, right? So it's not still an algorithm that we can automate. Uh, but I think those kinds of understanding could help us design better architecture search. So again, I would say like, uh, you know, I was talking about architecture search, right? Yeah. And that is indeed a hard problem. I mean, right now, even simple greedy search kind of approaches take up a lot of resources. So if you want to solve it at scale very efficiently, that's out there. Okay. Uh, but on the other hand, there are some immediate things we can do to improve the current state of art. What other things are you working on? Yeah, it's been really a broad set of problems. Uh, I recently, uh, I think I shared it online on SlideShare that talks about how to, you know, bring our thinking of all aspects of AI together, right? So I three, three, uh, I see three facets. There is data, there are algorithms, and then there's the infrastructure. 
and until now we've been kind of uh, thinking of each separately but there's a need to bring them together to have the best efficiency the best uh, impact um to give an example you know typically we first collect data feed them into machine learning algorithms but in most practical applications data is such a crucial aspect and what we found in a series of studies is you can drastically improve data collection aggregation and augment our current data better to give an example um we looked at uh, the named entity recognition task and the onto notes is the biggest public uh, benchmark there the what and is what's it called onto notes okay onto notes yeah and uh, so then we ran a simple uh, uh, active learning heuristic which says you know feed the current model a, a set of labeled examples and after it updates look at the look for the examples that have a high uncertainty in the current model right so this is the basic active learning framework and we found that we could reach the state of the art with just 25% of the dataset wow so there are two aspects to it one is that active learning can re- drastically reduce our data requirements and the other is most of the time we are collecting data that's really irrelevant we don't need huge datasets many times you can even do deep learning on small data and that to me presents a lot of promise because in so many domains we don't have the luxury of large data sets so uh, how do you map this to this idea of data algorithms and infrastructure because in this case we are what we are doing is we are planning our data collection in the loop with our model training right got it right so we can ask the same in terms of even aggregating data you have a whole crowd of workers how do you like reconcile differences in their uh, answers right the standard approach is we do majority voting we have a whole bunch of annotators we try to clean up the uh, input data very carefully then we feed it to the machine learning model but what we show is you can in fact do them both in the loop you can try to keep learn about the annotator quality as you go along to train the machine learning model and the machine learning model can help you come up with better estimates of annotator quality and with this in fact uh, with uh, the microsoft coco datasets we took the raw annotations that were available for this dataset and we found that the optimal thing to do was to have just a single annotator per sample so if you had a fixed budget of annotations you are better off labeling more samples than to be very careful about labeling every sample and having a whole lot of annotators to reduce the noise on a single sample. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Of the three, uh, you haven't mentioned infrastructure. How does that tie into the loop? Or how do we tie that more closely into the right, loop? Right, right. So this ties in with the work I've been doing at Amazon Web Services, right? So naturally, I think... Uh, uh the answer will be the cloud because there is <laughs> i'm not just saying <laughs> because i'm in the cloud division right i mean as we scale up these models as we have data requirements grow uh the only answer will be to have uh, uh, to allow for elastic scaling and uh uh you know put computing at the hands of every individual right uh, anybody can go access uh, large amounts of infrastructure so that's the basic aspect like making gpus available to everyone is the starting point right but where i find a lot of uh, interesting challenges is when we try to build machine learning services 
across all levels of the stack. So there's the expert developer who likes to kind of maybe tweak with the backend to enterprises that just want to run application services and not even worry about any machine learning that's going on underneath, right? How do we satisfy the needs of these diverse customers? And I've been involved in uh, building SageMaker. That's the machine learning platform that removes a lot of heavy lifting associated with DevOps work when it comes to productionizing AI. So how do we you know, go from prototyping to a full-scale production machine learning service very easily? Right, and the idea is we have built all these uh, algorithms where there's a backend that automatically scales to multiple machines and gives high efficiency. And there's also the model serving aspect that helps you to manage different models, do A/B testing very easily, and deploy the models, um, you know, in a very uh, scalable way. So I think all these aspects so we are just beginning to think in an integrated way and there'll be more of it in the future. Awesome. Awesome. You were just on a panel here at Train AI. What was the panel about? Yeah. So Rob Mundro, the CDO of uh, Figure 8, you know, formerly Crowdflower, uh, uh, was earlier uh, in our group in Amazon AI. So we've interacted a lot. We've had a lot of discussions about data, about the state of machine learning, about his, uh, you know, adventures around the world. His, I don't know if you know, his uh, cycle large parts of India, Africa, like, you know, there is you know, Sarab is great. And so I was very happy to be on a panel uh, when he invited me that asks about taking uh, um, somebody from PhD to products, right? So academia versus industry. And uh, for me, uh, being in both the worlds, uh, I felt like, you know, this was a great fit. How would you summarize the panel? Like, what were the main insights offered? Yeah, I think the main one is like, you know, the question of like, why PhD, right? Like it looks like, oh, there's so much happening in industry, why PhD? I think there is a lot of relevance for PhD even today, in fact, more than before, um, because there, first of all, there's a whole set of unsolved problems and industry is looking at only a sliver of them. And uh, in industry, sometimes things are so fast moving, you have to kind of get ship products and you don't have that opportunity for a deeper thinking, right? So if you're kind of in a position to say, I want this adventure, I want to like explore on my own, I want to ask my own questions, right? Then PhD is the right fit, but it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I would never advise somebody to do a PhD just to get a machine learning job, right? (laughs) So that's like the wrong reason. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, there were useful and very interesting discussions like that. Fantastic. Well, Nima, before we wind down, any other thoughts that you'd like to share? No, uh, I think I really appreciate all the great work that you're doing. I think it's very important to publicize all the efforts that are happening in AI and machine learning. And more importantly, like kind of give a realistic view of the field, right? So I do think there is a lot of hype in the media on one hand, and at the same time, a lot of fear mongering. And sometimes by big and powerful names that I'm sure... (laughs) Shall remain nameless. Yeah, but it's very easy to infer and I... completely disagree. I think it's a, I would call it an abuse of power to kind of use their positions to do this kind of a fear mongering because there's a lot of uh, real world impact to be had, uh, especially a lot of social impact to be had through 
um, the use of AI and we are still very much at the beginning. There is so much development to be done and investing in AI, investing in AI education should be the priorities of governments and uh, organizations. So I'm so happy that, uh, you know, you have this podcast and uh, uh, you're making efforts to provide a balanced uh, view of the topic. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's great to chat with you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Anima or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 142. Thanks again to Figure 8 for their sponsorship of this show. To follow along with the Train AI series, visit twimlai.com slash train AI 2018. Finally, show us some love for the podcast's second anniversary and share how it's been helpful to you. You can do that over at twimlai.com slash 2AV. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.